we were both in corporate America, my husband and I, and we were like, got to get out of this. Like, we just can't handle it. And so we were trying to think of business ideas and we thought we need to use technology where no one's using technology effectively. So that's what we did. After going through every mistake you could possibly make in property management, I just I would I would do the same thing starting any business. I would be like, what's the checklist? I just don't want the headaches, right? Headaches, that's what makes running a business stressful. And SOPs in my life and world have solved the fires. I mean, not entirely, but for the most part, if you do things in a consistent manner and you can hand off work to someone else with general confidence that it can get done because it's written down, you're going to enjoy your life and you're going to be able to scale at a fun rate. Welcome to another episode of the Profitable Property Management Podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Muela, already talking with Gwen. Gwen, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. What a treat. I'm excited to hear a little bit about what you've been up to. As usual, all the good stuff was coming out before we hit record, so we just kind of have to actually start filming. Okay, let's do it. (laughs) So let's let's jump in. Um, You and I have known each other for a while. You have a background in property management. How, How long was your run with your management business? 16 years. 16 years, and then you sold, what, two years ago? Mm-hmm. Yeah, two years ago. Okay, great. And now you're full-time focused on what? Anaquim, which we help property managers with all their labor needs. So whether it's a virtual assistance from Mexico, whether it's a call center, whether it's a back office accounting, we try to talk to each property manager, really hear what their needs are and see if we can find a solution. So we're both here at the NARPM National Convention, hustling, having conversations, shaking hands, kissing babies, all that good stuff. And I'm just excited to kind of catch up in here. Me too. I always love talking to you because you are one of those people that's also extremely curious. Mm. And I love picking your brain about what the latest thing that you've learned, your takeaway, where life's taken you. Mm. That's why I love talking to you. Yeah, well, I appreciate that. (laughs) Right back at you. So your journey has included a couple of different businesses now, but you've focused on the same end consumer and you're pretty embedded in the community as am I, which I really enjoy. I've reflected on being vertically focused outside the industry. There's a term of like vertical SaaS, which is just another way of saying focusing on one specific industry instead of serving 50 different industries. And I really like it. I'm into it. I like going deep in relationships, being able to help people from a number of different dimensions. What do you love about this industry in particular? I love this industry because I love the people in it. A lot of people came into this industry uh, maybe accidentally in some way. And it has the true hustle that makes, it's like the ultimate American business, right? Like people from all backgrounds, Mm. hustling, Mm. making it, creating jobs and being really innovative and creative. 
and also serving a basic human need, which is housing. Mm. So it it just attracts salt of the earth, great people. And I just, I really love being here. I always talk about it as getting the band back together when we come to NARPM events or anything property management oriented, because it, it feels like a family reunion. Yeah, there's that relational connection, that kind mm-hmm. of familial nature to it, which is really rewarding. But, but that's today. Back many, many years ago, I didn't know it was going to be like that. I'm guessing you didn't either. What actually got you into property management? Uh, low bar of entry. <laughs> we, we just knew, okay, so uh, this is the honest story. We were both in corporate America, my husband and I, and we were like, got to get out of this. Like, we just can't handle it. And so we were trying to think of business ideas. And we thought, we need to use technology where no one's using technology effectively. Because at the time, people were on, you know, like spreadsheets and everything. There was no notes. software. Yeah, post-it notes. You get like uh, something paper clipped together in the mail about how your building was doing. Um, we wanted to be this is I think the industry has totally changed. So this is no reflection of the community now. But in the past, it had kind of a used car, you know, landlord feel. Mm -hmm. So one of our things was like, take a shady industry and don't be shady. Mm -hmm. And then we needed like no money to enter it. Mm -hmm. So so that's what we did. We he had some prep my husband before we got married had some properties in Omaha, we couldn't find a property manager that was using technology. We saw some shady practices being done in the area. We thought, let's move home close to your family to Omaha, Nebraska, and let's do this. So he, my husband got the broker's license. He was the, at the time, the, had the fastest, was the fastest one to get their broker's license, like in Nebraska history. And we just hung up our shingle and we're like, if it has a roof, we'll take it. So it had these flashing lights that made it look attractive. (laughs) No, it was just like, I don't know. We made every mistake that you could possibly make. We learned from them. We iterated. We got software. We were completely transparent. And, you know, it it worked out. What type of corporate gigs did you and Jeremy have? So I worked uh, in healthcare IT, and he was in transportation logistics. And then when we got started, we didn't have any money. So I worked as a pharma rep to pay the bills while we started the business. And then we flipped houses on the weekends. Got it. Okay. What did you feel like you ported out of your previous career into property management? Well, just the technology piece. I mean, we just sucked everything out of the softwares that were available at the time and made sure that we were doing tech like the best that you could at any point in time. And that was our main focus. And then we that allowed us to just be fully transparent because at the time when everything was on paper, some of the people in our local area were like saying they would replace the toilet, not replace the toilet. There's no receipts. And so those kinds of things made us stand out in our local community at the time. It was just a different industry back then. What's the population of Omaha? Right now, it's like 800,000, I think. Maybe maybe we're at a million at this point. How large were you guys before you sold? Um, I think we were at 1,500 units. Were you one of the, I assume, one of the larger companies in your market? Yes. Got it. Okay, so how did you, how did you get it off the ground? Like first couple hundred units, what did you do to scrap? Oh, gosh. At the time, well, we had some of our own units, and then we had... 
there was like a landlording organization. We got one of those guys to give us his units. And then there was somebody that was taking advantage of a lot of people. And so I think we just did a mailer and we just, we weren't- Are you being taken advantage of? We weren't targeting anybody, but we just got like a huge response. Off a mailer. Off of a mailer. I mean, this is 16 years ago. Wow. And we're at the Midwest. Uh -huh. So things might be a little bit, you yeah. know, slower there. But this mailer went crazy. And then we got a reputation and people really like the tech technology forward approach and it took off. And how did you and Jeremy delegate responsibilities in the business? Who did what? So he mostly did, cause I was paying the bills mm. for the first two years. Our our rule with one another is that businesses had to make money within 18 months or you got to wrap it up. Mm. So I think in 18 months he made his first paycheck, but I had to pay the rent with my corporate job. And then I really worked hard on flipping houses also. So he really was the brains behind the beginning of it. But then I came back into the picture and did quality control. And so then the quality control really kind of got things, I think, in order. And I was more like the project manager. I'd read a book and like implement it into the system. And so then we really worked as a team. Was, then it, on. was it more getting sick of corporate or was there like an early desire from you guys to be entrepreneurs? Were you... I think there was an early desire for us to own our own businesses. I just, we weren't motivated in the way that we knew we were capable of being motivated mm. when we were working for other people. So like you knew you had the goods, but you also knew it wasn't being called out of you in that environment? Yes. Well, I don't know if I knew I had anything. Like, I mean, <laughs> you knew you I don't work for someone I just knew. Yeah, I don't, I don't think Jeremy and I had like this. I don't know. It's not like anyone in our lives were like, you're amazing. You're going to really be somebody when you grow up. It, we weren't those kids that were like, oh, this person's going to make it. Got we didn't it. come from that kind of programming. Yeah. So it was really just like, I don't know, an us against the world feeling. Mm -hmm. like, let's just try it. What do we have to lose? No one believes in us anyway. Mm -hmm. You know, that kind of thing. So at 1,500 units, you've built something fairly successful at that point. I mean, generally you come here and obviously unit count doesn't matter that much. But if you come here and you say you're managing 1,500 units, it's like, okay, respect. And yet that clearly wasn't enough of what you wanted to keep focusing on. You chose to do something else. How did Anaquim get birthed out of what you were doing there? So in 2008, well, my husband lived in Mexico doing transportation and logistics before I met him. And in 2008, the economy crumbled in the United States and he got a call from a former employee and she said, you know, it's bad in the U.S., but it's like horrible here in Mexico. And I just had a baby and I'm struggling feeding my child. I, I'm having trouble paying rent like I'm in a desperate situation. For better or worse, my husband is one of the most loyal people you'll ever meet. And he literally like paced at night, like wanting to help her figure something out. So then VOIP phones had just come out. Mm. So we shipped one to her in Guadalajara and she started answering the calls for a property management company. And it was like the biggest win-win. So then as our business was developing and growing, we just hired all her friends to do all the other things from marketing, maintenance coordination, accounting, all the things. And we just operated like that to 2016, just quietly had our whole back office run in Mexico. Before the, That's like before this was really a huge thing. No one was doing it. Like, absolutely. I mean, we didn't really have video conferencing. So it was all over conference calls. And I mean, Zoom didn't exist back then. Mm. At least I wasn't aware of it. Uh, Sky would have been like Skype days. Skype days. Totally. 
So, so we just operated like that. Then we had friends from Denver at Boutique Property Management come and visit us. And they're like, this Mexico thing is crazy and working out super well for you. Can you find people for us? And I was like, sure, I'll do that as a side hustle. So I side hustled that deal. They loved their people. And I was like, Jeremy, I think this is a business. So being a mom of like little kids, you know how you can't focus. So I just stayed at my local Marriott and like hunkered down, wrote the initial processes and procedures for like three days. They were worried about me. They did a, a well check because I never came out of the hotel room. They're like, are you still alive, lady? I'm like, I'm fine. Just concentrating. And then that was how Anaquim began. It's interesting that you're saying where you started off was with systems and processes. Is that more your bent, like SOPs? I mean, it just, after going through every mistake you could possibly make in property management. Seemed like a good idea. I just, I would, I would do the same thing starting any business. I would be like, how, what's the checklist? I just don't want the headaches, right? Headaches, that's what makes running a business stressful. And SOPs in my life and world have solved the fires. I mean, not entirely, but for the most part, if you do things in a consistent manner and you can hand off work to someone else with general confidence that it can get done because it's written down, you're going to enjoy your life and you're going to be able to scale at a fun rate. Hearing you say that makes me think that you seem particularly well suited to start and run the kind of business that you're running. SOPs, working with remote labor, there's, there's a strong adjacency in those topics. Mm-hmm. When you scale, when you started scaling up that business, what did you think it was going to become versus what it is now? Hmm. I didn't know the virtual assistants would go as far as it has. I'm sh- I'm a little surprised by that. I thought we would do... You thought it was like a side hustle? Yeah, we, we had no idea. It was supposed to be my mom like part-time job. I know. Who knew? And so I don't think we ever expected it to grow the way that it had. I mean, what, what, how, what's your what's the headcount of the team size now? We're at like twelve hundred people. So it's expanded pretty considerably. Yeah, yeah, it's been it's been great. It's the team. Our team is really responsible for that. The people that I'm just obsessed with our team, and so I really attribute it to the people, the humans that they are, the integrity that they have, what they have helped us build with the processes and procedures, and managing any complications that come around. I mean, it's just it's all them. But so as that business is taking off, you choose to divest yourself of the property management company. What's the difference in the feel and the ethos and the vibe of managing this business versus the other one? Mm. No, business is very similar. Uh, I'm an entrepreneur's organization, so I talk to entrepreneurs in all different fields. Honestly, it's not it's not that much different than property management. You're dealing with people issues. You're dealing with process, procedure, technology. We're all trying to figure out AI. Um, and so I think the difference is scaling as fast as we have, really dialing in on quality control. And I think that this is something that property managers just, we always talk about SOPs, but we don't talk enough about maintaining SOPs, using SOPs, and creating a quality control department that functions to keep people doing what they're supposed to be doing. I wish we talked more about that in property management because I think it would solve a lot of stress level health problems of property management owners. But that has just been a necessity to focus on that piece of it because of our scaling and our growth. I get that business is generic in nature. I so deeply relate to that. The way that I'm focused on running my company, the stuff that matters most to me is not software specific. How I relate to people, my leadership style, that's all very, very similar in nature. However, 
having run, for example, Lead Simple, Profit Coach, Friend Scale, some other stuff, though I ran a lead gen business first, man, was that business different. That was, there was so much complaining in that business and people leads, leads are no good. Actually, you never called the lead. It, it almost had like an adversarial nature. Um, the software business, because of the, by virtue of the fact that it's recurring revenue, there's some intrinsic stability to it that jumping back into service is not there. Service can be every month, like you're earning that check and you're starting back at zero. That was some new stress. Along those lines, what's the, the feel and the difference between the businesses? Well, it's interesting because maybe I don't feel like I'm actually out of property management. because oh, you're serving property managers doing this running property management business. And we do back, we do 24 hour call center. Got so it. I am still like completely immersed in tenant issues, you know, making sure that the owner accounts when we do back office accounting, that, you know, the trust account is like reconciled. Maybe it's because I'm just too much still <laughs> in property management. <laughs> yeah. You know, we support people with marketing, some marketing things. We, depending on what people's challenges are, we don't, we don't try to recreate the wheel, but we try to help people. And maybe I'm just too close to it still. I don't think I ever really got out. I'm just doing it in a slightly different capacity. Well, along those lines, an interesting thought is I really like playing compounding games. And one of those games is getting to see the same people over extended periods of time, deepening my relationship, improving the quality of my services, and leveraging my existing network to be able to do more. I've liked playing that game. You're playing a very similar game. Mm -hmm. You're talking to the same people that you've known. You you were in the industry for <clears throat> how many years before you jumped into 16 years for, it, for property management. Yeah. Got okay. it. So that was fair bit of ramp to then turn around and start selling in that same mm -hmm. context. As you as you jumped from the PM to the vendor side, this is definitely one thing that's different. I've seen a number of folks jump from PM to vendor. I haven't I don't think I've seen anyone jump from vendor back to PM. Mm. I don't know what that means. We can deconstruct that later. But what did it feel like for you to jump from PM to vendor being at trade shows, et cetera? Was it pretty natural or could, was there any like felt um, difference in being on the other side of the table? Huh, interesting. Um, at, at the very beginning, since our company was so little, I think my sales strategy was very unique. I wore really bright colored dresses. This was literally how we got started as a vendor. And then I'd go to the biggest conferences I could find. I think it was mostly NARPM National. And I would ask a question in the general session and just say, hey, I get virtual assistance from Mexico. And then people would find the dress later and they'd be like, can you find me a virtual assistant from Mexico? And I would get like tons of leads without spending any money as long as I made Scrappy. back. Right? Scrappy. <laughs> I am from Detroit. I love it. So, so because we started so small and so organically and in like this micro sales pitch, we didn't even have a website for the first two years of this business. It was just complete organic growth. Then I think as we really got into serving and being vendors, it was such a iterative process and such a like an interesting migration um, that it almost felt like it, it wasn't any dramatic cha change. It was just a progressive shift, if that makes sense. Yeah. So I mean, now the main thing is you just want your friends to be happy, 
right? Like you just want to make sure that when you see your friends, they're like happy with the service. And so there might just be an added stress of being like, you know, is your business growing? Are you happy with the service? How are things? Like, have you run into any challenges? And before that, before I was a vendor, there wasn't that added stress because we were all just playing our own game and just learning from one another. So, you know, you just want people to be happy. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you're going to keep seeing them all over and over. Again. Yeah. The ideal. And they're your friends. So you want to make sure that you serve them and did right by them. How has the category shifted over time? I feel like there are so many more Oh, vendors. it's been really different. Yeah. So when we started, it was maybe us and one or two other players. And now there are several different players. So the category has absolutely changed. I make up there's like 15 plus. There, in some iterations, I, I you're in- Some iterations. But when somebody goes on Facebook and says, I'm thinking about hiring a VA. Yeah. I mean, I tell you, it's like a bloodbath of like 30 people saying, mm -hmm. oh, this one, this one, this one, et cetera. And obviously there's different, clear differentiation if you actually look into it. But from a distance, there's a lot of people doing something that looks somewhere like it. So what is the nuance beyond just VA? What is like the actual segmented nuance in the category? There are some segments. So there's like, we're, all of our employees are legally employed in Mexico. And so we're a legal entity down there, which means that we can attract top talent because, um, I mean, we can advertise in all the ways that you'd want to advertise for legitimate jobs. We compete with HP, with Netflix for top talent. We really care about our glass door ranking. And so when you're a real business in, in the country that you're operating in, there are just some differences in the quality of people that you can get. Is Glassdoor actually like a real big thing in Mexico? Oh, yeah. Oh. oh, yeah. I'm like all about the Glassdoor ranking. Okay. Yeah. And it, it really inspired... It informs how we operate because I have to maintain that at a high level so it can mm. always get the top talent. So you can't run a churn number in operation. No, no. And also because they're legal employees, if someone fires somebody, I'm legally on the hook if they do it in a bad way. So I need it to work for both the owner and the remote. That sounds healthy. It sounds win-win. It is a win-win. So I love that aspect of it. And it has made us better over time. And I think it makes the client, it just naturally inspires the right activity. So there are the legal operators. There are some people that you just, the, the, they're more of a website. And then the operator gets the remote and they're in charge of paying them on time and that kind of thing. So the negative to that would be that in a, in a if you're in an emerging market and you're working with a small player that you've never met before, you're not sure you're going to get paid. So they're going to ask for more. And the next time someone has an extra dollar, they could leave you so there's less retention. But if you find a great person and trust is built, you know, you can maybe get a savings and money there and it can work for you. So I think that those are kind of like the extremes and then there are some different approaches in the middle, if that makes sense. It does make sense. I'm really curious how you think about who you choose to work with. SMB is known for many things, including being the salt of the earth. And I deeply feel that. I feel the impact of working with these people and it gives me a lot of joy for being real. SMB is also known for limited manage formal management training, mm -hmm. frequently organizations where leadership is somewhat under developed, mm -hmm. particularly for smaller operators that are doing everything. The idea of like reading a Jim Collins book and meditating on the best way to motivate your employees isn't really a thing. So when you're placing team members into businesses, the quality of the environment that they're going into could vary radically. How do you think about who you choose to partner with in order to supply and build a team for them? 
Well, we work with all levels of people on all journeys of the business uh, spectrum. So for newer players, we just handhold. So we're going to just kind of see where you are. And if you've never used a virtual assistant before, we're going to make sure your onboarding is spectacular to give it the best chance of success. So we're going to make sure we're going to walk you through what passwords do they need? Which softwares do they need access to? When do they need to be good at this particular thing? Put it on your calendar. They need to be good at it at this date. If they're not good at it at this date, call us. We'll help you troubleshoot. So we have found that being amazing, like white glove on the whole process gives that gives people the better uh, opportunity for success. And without that handholding, you get that higher churn. So we just help them be successful. Now, also, if someone is like really just wants a deal, they're not going to go with us because we're going to we're just not going to be the outfit for them. They're going to go onto a website and they're going to hire somebody for like four dollars an hour. And so it's kind of nice that there are all that there are all these different outfits providing different things, because I think it allows us to attract the kind of um, clients that work best with our business model. How do you handle a situation where somebody goes through six, seven, eight VAs and it becomes clear that the VAs aren't the problem? How do you navigate those conversations? So we actually really monitor people's churn rate and we have a conversation like, look, our job is to make sure that we help you be successful. When we look at your churn being higher than what's average in the industry, we're not helping you. So we have to figure out what the problem is. Are we finding you the wrong people? Is it the way that, you know, can we support you in managing them better? Like, what is the root cause of this? And we can sometimes troubleshoot that. We've had success where we've been able to coach people in getting better. Sometimes it's resulted in, you know, maybe we're not a good fit. But I think having that conversation about like our only goal is to help you be better at uh, your business and you're totally losing money if you're retraining people one after the other. So what is the deal here? Like what's going on? How many states require a license in order to be a property manager? Roughly. I mean, isn't all of them? I mean, we just operate as everybody needs some kind of license to be a property manager. Like legally, I mean, sure, you could... A lot of people can do things without it, but Kansas. my understanding is that everybody has to have a license. I think uh, Kansas, yeah, I mean, there's there's definitely a, a couple that don't for sure. Okay, um, but I don't even I don't even run into that. I feel like the adjacency. Of the question is really how what roles can a global team member hold and be in? There's both. Uh, looking at that from a capacity perspective and obviously from a licensure perspective. What's the scope maybe on the higher end? Obviously, frontline stuff, I'm sure that's the case. But uh, can you give me some examples or like kind of your read and what you're seeing on how far people are pushing the placement of global talent? In your okay, experience? so it's good. it shocks people. Like we really have to teach them that people in Mexico, the talent that we can attract is so high that these can literally be your right-hand person. I mean, it's insane what we can attract. So the real question is, what kind of jobs can be done from behind a computer? And I'm saying all of the positions. So I'm asking our talent not only to do operational tasks, which is what traditionally virtual assistants can do, but help you with your processes and procedures, complete giant projects, 
work on implementing and migrating you onto a different software platform. I expect like literally everything that you would want from a domestic employee. And we can find that kind of talent in Mexico. And people are doing it. Like if you ask Tom at PestShare, his Diego is like, does everything at that business. He really has supported him in his growth. And um, I mean, our per we have someone that started taking calls, midnight calls at our call center, and they're doing all the quality control and helping us with all of our technology, technological advancement. And so it's not just, you know, words that we're saying. This is really people's experience. Hmm. When you think about the advancement path for folks, you're referencing high quality talent. How do you assess that, Gwen? How do you assess the caliber of the talent that you're placing? Well, I mean, they have resumes just like all of us. So you can assess it through what kind of work they've done in the past. But two, we do the culture index assessment to see if that person's going to be a good fit. Um, but I mean, yeah, if you're if, if you have done project management at a big corporation, you can do it in property management. Um, so we're looking at resumes that really reflect the same quality of person that you would see here. Um, people are really into getting educated in Mexico. So we have a lot of people with master's degrees, lawyers work for us accountants. I mean, you can find the same range of talent in Mexico as you can find here. So we're really not limited. I mean, I hired somebody from the Macy's of Mexico. It's called Liverpool. And he was the HR director at Liverpool. And he's our HR director now. And so, I mean, that's that's high quality, top talent, lots of experience. Hmm. When you think about the value that you're getting out of the business, personally, non-monetary in nature, what does that look like for you? Uh, I'm per like for me personally, I'm just personal growth oriented. So I just want to learn new things, be better for the people I love, give back more to the community. And so all the work that I do is always through that lens. Hmm. How do you manage the pursuit of personal growth with not falling prey to that voice in the back of your head that tells you that you're not enough? How, well, so it's a journey. It's a journey, Jordan. <laughs> um, I mean, I journal write every single morning. So I wake up, I meditate, I journal write. And, you know, I think the a lot of us when we get started in any entrepreneurial pursuit, maybe that I'm not enough was what drove us for a while. But I have already gone through that midlife crisis where um, that kite was going to kill me unless I figured out how to manage it. And so I had to do the di digging up all the dead bodies of my past, figuring out what that looks like and find a new way to motivate myself that's a lot healthier and allows me to lead at a higher level. Because I, I felt for me, I was hiring such amazing talents that I was like, ooh, I better, I have to be better in order to inspire these people because mm. I'm inspired by them. Mm. And if I'm not inspired to them, if I'm not keeping up with them, this isn't going to work. And we're, I'm not going to be able to help them get the best lives that they deserve. And so it really caused some introspection. I mean, I did some deep work. I did some really hard introspection. Um, I did a lot of trauma therapy and got over a lot of the things that were painful in my past. And I do, obviously, it's like a continuous journey, but I do feel like I'm leading from a different place than just self-doubt and like imposter syndrome. Hmm. That's really interesting hearing you describe that. Did, would you say that that was more like um, being willing to look at something that you were unwilling to look at previously or simply relating to it in a different way? 
Uh, I think both. I think it required both. But I mean, I was clearly a workaholic. I mean, I don't think that you can be a serial entrepreneur without maybe, a well, at least from a background that I'm from, without some workaholism. And so I really didn't ever want to be alone with myself or mm-hmm. with my thoughts. I always needed something to fill that up. And so when you're running from yourself, you have to, you can't run forever. So we had to take a step back and then relate differently. So I guess it's a twofold. So take some time to to look at your past life, get comfortable with being quiet, get comfortable with being alone, and then relate to your past in a different way that's less healthier Hmm. you know i hear that and um i wish that for people i've been able to experience some of that myself and it has not provided it has not made me immune from the tendency towards manicness compulsiveness it has given me more awareness of when i'm falling back into that i still like i'm still riding the wave there's Mm -hmm. ups and there's downs but i think there's a little more awareness and out of that position of awareness i'm faster to internalize what's going on rather than thinking and assuming that my feelings are simply a function of what's happening around me like Mm -hmm. of course i'm upset because this thing happened as opposed to the feelings of upset are Mm self-generated it's not one-to-one with the thing happening like that Mm -hmm. came out of me and because it came out of me I can own it. I can look at it. I can feel it. And if I can feel it enough, I might be able to relate to it in a different way. Mm -hmm. Yes. I don't think our generation was taught to manage negative emotions. Mm-hmm. And actually having teenage daughters has really helped me with this process because mm-hmm. I'm like watching them and I'm like, this is a big emotion. What would you name the emotion? It's Brene Brown over here. Yeah. On a scale from one to 10, there's the business. I don't think she does the scale from one to 10, but maybe she does. At a scale from one to 10, how intense is it? Where do you feel it in your body? Can we just breathe with that for a minute? And then over time, they get better at processing them. Uh-huh. And I'm like, that only took 20 minutes. We got you from a 10 to a 2. And 20 minutes winning. And so I do that with my kids. It's harder to do it with yourself, but it, I, you know, I'm just trying to make sure I manage the negative emotions, not be enmeshed with it, and then handle it in a better way. Yeah. I'll go out on a limb here and say that my experience has been more women that had the capacity or the comfortability with feeling on the empathetic side where it felt non-threatening. Whereas by contrast, I have felt and I have, it's probably the people I was raised by, there was more of a sense of feeling threatened by the idea of feeling the emotion. Like, like feeling the emotion is to give yourself over to the emotion. And if you've given yourself over to the emotion, you've lost control. Therefore, just don't feel it, mm. which is, man, that doesn't work. I wish it worked, you know? I wish you could just like close the closet, hammer it shut, put nails in the door, and that stuff would just stay there. My experience is that just doesn't quite work. I would agree with you. And I do feel like society has harmed men with this this idea of feeling their feelings and scared of males you know the male anger because it could be threatening but anger is natural emotion women are also afraid of of anger because we're taught not to have it but i i really think that this is a great moment for our kids that they're going to relate to their emotions differently because we're handling our emotions differently and i think that's messy and it scares people scares employers for sure Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't want to be my employee's therapist. So, mm-hmm. I mean, there is a clear line there that mm, for sure. 
But um, I am excited for the new conversations that we're having. And I think it's going to be a positive development over time as we get used to both men and women expressing emotion and having all the emotions in a context that isn't like super gendered. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the flip for me is to assign power to that. Like there, like there is power in that conversation. Like I don't simply want to relate to the world as battle and war and like I'm going to dominate. But if I did, me feeling my emotions, it, it dramatically empowers what I'm, whatever I'm trying to prosecute and the will that I'm trying to put out there. That's the flip for me is it doesn't make me soft. It doesn't. No, I, th- I and I think being aware of your emotions and have then once you're aware of them, once you allow them, you can control them in a way that like flows naturally instead of pushing it down, having a beer and a banana nut muffin, which is actually Brene Brown quote from one of her videos. <laughs> so the I, it is it's this it's a new way to relate to the emotions, but. I think it does make us better leaders. And that was that next level of leadership that I was seeking was how can I manage my emotions in a way that is authentic and easy and calm and confident that will allow me to lead in a better way Mm. that I don't think you have access to if you're stuck in imposter Mm -hmm. syndrome, if you're stuck in, if you're leading from I'm not enough. Mm -hmm. I don't think you can get to that next level of leadership. That's what I experienced. You crack. Something in your life falls apart. Yeah, true. Maybe you don't crack. Maybe the people around you crack. Yeah. I mean, I cracked. (laughs) To be honest. (laughs) In my experience, it was definitely me. Yeah, I mean, potato, potato, which is worse. I don't want either happening. I I mean, that doesn't feel much better that I don't crack, but I I crack the people around me. You know, I don't also don't want that. I appreciate you sharing. I really, I feel the, the courage and I experience your presence as still being a stone cold killer while feeling your emotions. Yeah, I mean, isn't that the fun part? Mm -hmm. That's like where the learning is. Thanks for sharing, thanks for being here. Oh my gosh, my pleasure. I love talking to you, Jordan. You always, it's always always an interesting conversation. Thank you. Back at, yeah, total joy. Thanks a lot, talk soon. That's it for this episode, hope you enjoyed it. You can check out other episodes along the way. If you're watching this on YouTube, Appreciate to subscribe, any comments, I'm always here to engage. If you're listening on an audio platform, would really appreciate a review. It's a great way to help other people find out about the show.